You may be seated. Well, as we continue in worship now, let's attend to God's Word. We're going to read from four passages this morning. Uh, Jen will read from us from Isaiah, which will be our main text. We're looking at chapters 2 to 4 this morning, but uh, we won't read the whole chapters. We'll just read a selection from Isaiah chapters 2 to 4. Anna will read for us from Malachi 4, Lisa from Psalm 51, and then Ryan from Revelation 19. Uh, the thing to, to look for in these passages that's the, the common thread that holds them together is that Isaiah is going to tell us about a day of judgment that is coming, but also a day of redemption, a day of glorification for his people. Malachi will speak of that same day. He will speak of a day of judgment and a day of glorification. Psalm 51 will tell us that those who were sinners, who were under God's judgment, can be cleansed and can actually have peace with God. And then in Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, we'll see our ultimate hope of glorification that we have, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, And so let's listen to these texts now as God's Word moves us from uh, the, the words of judgment and condemnation to the words of forgiveness and glorification. Let me pray that God would open our eyes to understand these things. God, we know that we can only understand spiritual truth by the work of your Spirit. And so, God, would you send your Spirit now to open our hearts to understand these spiritual things, Lord, to understand the the weight and the terror of your judgment, but also, Lord, to understand the, the free and abounding mercy that you offer to us. God, would you cause our hearts to rejoice in you and be glad in you as we hear your word now? And Lord, would you equip me especially to teach your word faithfully, Lord, that we all might turn from our sins and turn increasingly to you in love with our Savior. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst 
by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge huge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Malachi 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Psalm 51, verse 7 through 15. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from Blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Well, as we come to our text this morning, we can see that in, this, in these chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 2-4, to four, are words of great warning, but also words of great promise. And I believe that what this text of Isaiah wants to hold out for us more than anything else is the hope that is to come. God wants us to fix our eyes not on the suffering that we experience here and now, the the judgment that so often comes upon the earth, the consequences of our sin, but he wants us to fix our eyes 
on what he will do. And so the question I'd like you to ask yourself at the beginning of the message this morning is simply, what is it that you are hoping in day to day right now in your life? When you are finished with work each day or when you're about to go to bed each night, what is it that you most look forward to in the next day or in the rest of your day? Are you simply looking forward to the time when you don't have to be awake anymore and you can go to sleep? Is it looking forward to some time when some particular problem in your life is over or when you have more emotional or relational peace? Is it a time when your bank account is going to hit a certain amount and then you'll finally be able to retire? What is the hope that you look forward to each day that keeps you marching forward? Part of the message that Isaiah has for us in these chapters is that whatever it is that you're hoping for on this earth, it does not compare to the hope that God has for you. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, which is itself a quote from Isaiah, says, As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Beloved, we cannot imagine what God has prepared for us. It makes so much more sense to base our lives upon the hope that God has for us, even though it may still be many years away, makes more sense to base our lives upon that hope than upon any earthly hope, even if we could get it today or next week or next year or in 10 years. Because all the hopes that we have on this earth are fleeting and will soon be gone. But if we set our only hope upon God and what he promises for us, then our hope will never fail. It will last forever. Now, I know that for many of us, myself included, the subject of hope seems a little bit far removed from our circumstances. After all, I live and most of us live a fairly comfortable life. It's fairly easy to get through each day just given the physical comforts that we have, given the relationships that we have, given the blessings that God has for us. And yet the New Testament makes clear that if we want to follow Jesus, then we should expect hardships in our life. And if we should expect hardships, then we will need a source of hope beyond those hardships if we are going to press through. To give just a couple of examples, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if we're going to live for Jesus, we're going to suffer some persecution. Or even more to the point, the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, this is verses 24 to 26, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. In short, what Jesus is saying is that a Christian is giving up a life of pursuing riches, giving up a life of pursuing satisfaction in terms of food or other earthly goods, giving up a life of having a good reputation where everybody thinks well of you. We are committing ourselves to living a countercultural life in the footsteps of Jesus who took up his cross and did things that were foolish in the eyes of the world. 
And so we must recognize that all of us, if we are going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, as 2 Timothy says, then we must have some hope to hold out that has this life make sense. Otherwise, what are we doing? Giving up on all the goods that we can have here and now. Giving up the hopes that could be fulfilled today or next year or 10 years from now. So hope should be all important to us as Christians. It should be a daily subject of our thoughts as we go through the hardships of this life and we are wondering what makes these hardships make sense. We should be able to look forward to the age that is to come where we have rewards waiting for us that, as 2 Corinthians says, are unimaginable to us right now. This is the hope that we have. The hope that we have is like the finish line for runners competing in a race. If you're running in a race, you have to know where that finish line is, if you're going to finish the race and if you're going to win it. And in that way, we have a hope that is set before us and we know that we are running toward that hope. It is our great finish line. And in that way, the hope that we have can also be like the fuel in our tanks that keeps us going again when life seems hard. When the decisions that God wants us to make don't seem to make sense, we can look to the hope that is to come and we can say, Lord, even though it is hard, I will persevere for what you have waiting for me. To put it succinctly, if you have a small hope, then you will have a small capacity to love and to sacrifice. On the other hand, if you have a glorious and enormous hope, then you will have a large capacity to love and to sacrifice. The better the ultimate future, the more we can give up here and now. Now the way this passage of Isaiah is structured for us this morning is that in Isaiah 2.1, we have the introduction to this particular prophecy of Isaiah. It says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And so these words of prophecy that Isaiah has are addressed to Judah and to its capital, Jerusalem. From there, in verses 2 to 4, we see the great hope that God has for Jerusalem, the great plan that he has for Jerusalem. But then in 2 verse 5 to 4 verse 1, we see how far Jerusalem has fallen from that great hope, how they have taken their eyes off of the prize, how they have taken their eyes off of what God's plans for them are, and they have set their hopes on short earthly things like wealth and power. But God does not simply leave it at how they have fallen short. In chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, Isaiah returns to the theme of the great hope that God has for Jerusalem and for Judah. Chapter 5 will continue to speak to Judah and Jerusalem, but Isaiah changes his metaphors and begins a different story, so to speak. And that's why this morning we're going to limit our observations to chapters 2 to 4, and next week we'll take up what Isaiah has to say in chapter 5. But now in bringing this text to light, I don't simply want to go from beginning to end. I'm going to restructure this text for us a little bit. And so first, what I'm going to look at is Judah's problem. We're going to look at what Judah's problem is. 
Second, we're going to look at God's response to Judah's problem. And then third, and in closing, we're going to look at God's hope for Jerusalem and for Judah and for us in the midst of their problem. So that's where we're going. Judah's problem, God's response to it, and then God's hope for them in the midst of it. Judah's deepest problem, in a word, was trading the hope that God had for them for the hope that they could have here on earth. God had given Jerusalem a great and an enormous calling. Again, that's what we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, just so you understand, the mountain of the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord is the temple. And so the mountain of the house of the Lord is the hill that the temple was built on. Jerusalem was built in a hilly region, much like Pittsburgh is built in a hilly region, and the temple of God was built on top of one of those hills. And so Isaiah here is speaking of this hill that Jerusalem was built on, that the temple was built on. It's saying the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So this picture of Jerusalem being the greatest city in all the earth shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come to it. So Jerusalem is going to be like the capital of the whole earth. All the nations are are flowing to Jerusalem. Verse 3, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I can scarcely imagine a better promise that God could have for any people or any city. That it would be the place from which righteousness goes, from which peace goes, from which good judgment goes. This is the great hope that God had given even to Abraham and to his descendants. The people of Jerusalem knew that this is what God had for them, and yet, what did they do? They gave up this great promise that God had for them, and they decided to set their eyes on things that they could have here and now, and not on this glorious future that God held out for them. We see, starting in chapter 2, verse 6, some of the problems that Jerusalem had. Isaiah says that they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. You see, they had lifted themselves up in pride, looking to the here and now, and part of looking to the here and now was looking at all the gifts that the nations around them could give to them, instead of looking at the gifts that God could give to them. And so they saw that the Philistines, their next-door neighbors, that they had fortune tellers. And these other foreigners, they strike hands with them, meaning they made deals with them to get what goods and gifts that they could get from those who were all around them. 
And so they were not looking again to this eternal reward, but they were looking to the things that they could have now. Verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. So this is telling us that Jerusalem was looking to wealth to make them happy. It says there was no end to their treasures. And then when Isaiah says filled with horses and no end to their chariots, they were looking to their own military might to make themselves successful and secure. And so even here, there's the question for us, to what extent are we looking at our own wealth as what makes us secure? To what extent are we looking to our own national strength or even simply looking to the police forces that we have and the justice system that we have in order to make us secure instead of looking to God to make us secure? Verse 8, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Again, they were impatient for the promises of God to come true. And so they made idols that were the work of their hands, gods which they could control. And again, how often do we, beloved, prefer things that we can control and manipulate with our own hands to waiting upon the Lord? who is his own governor and who is outside of our control. Today, we even have such visual pictures of this. We have little remote controls that we can use to control our TVs. We have smartphones that we can use, that we can pull up whatever information we want anytime we want. We love to have this world that is centered around our own manipulation, around our own preferences, instead of submitting our preferences to the God of the universe. We love control instead of surrender. And Jerusalem was the same way. A little later on in Isaiah chapter 3, Isaiah is continuing his charges against the rulers of Judah who sit in Jerusalem. Isaiah 3 verse 14 says, It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts? So Isaiah tells us that it is not right for leaders or governments anywhere to tax the poor in order to pay the rich, much less to tax the poor in order to line their own pockets. One of the most basic functions of any government is to protect those who are vulnerable, like the poor. Yet in Jerusalem, the leaders seemed interested only in exploiting the poor. I'm I'm thankful that we have many programs here in the U.S. that are run by our government to care for the poor. And yet we can also see that there are ways that we can grow as a nation. And we as Christians should be calling our government and calling one another to care for the poor in any way that we can. And then finally, and lastly, in Isaiah 3.16, Isaiah speaks specifically to the women of Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion. It says, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. 
Now, I know this is a very odd expression for us, but basically what Isaiah is saying is that the women of Jerusalem are all about pursuing outward beauty, pursuing what is fashionable, gaining attention for themselves with their glances. And so in all these ways, we have this picture of Judah and Jerusalem as a place that's eyes were very much set on the here and now, on gaining wealth, on gaining physical beauty, on gaining power. And this is not the hope that God held out for his people. It does not make Jerusalem the capital of the nations. Rather, it makes them offensive in God's sight. And so now we have this question of what is God going to do about it? What is he going to do about all of this pride and earthly things, about all of these earthly hopes that people are fixing their eyes on? The problem, ultimately, that Isaiah is making clear to the people is that they are giving up the glory of God and they are taking in the glory of man. They are exalting earthly things by giving their lives to them, and they are tearing down heavenly things by ignoring them and spurning them. And so what is God going to do? Isaiah's answer is that God is sending a day of judgment. Isaiah 2, verses 11 and 12, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So do you hear the words, in that day? Isaiah is proclaiming a day that is coming. Verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. You see, Isaiah is connecting this love of wealth and power and physical beauty. He is connecting all these things with human pride, with exaltation of ourselves and not God. And he is saying the day is coming when the tides will be reversed, when God will be exalted and these earthly hopes will be brought low. Isaiah repeats this theme of a day many times over in Isaiah 2 verse 17. It's almost an exact repeat of verse 12. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah 2.20, in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold. Isaiah 3.18, in that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents. Isaiah 4 verse 1, And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. There is a day coming, beloved. The day already came for Judah and for Jerusalem, but there is another day coming when the Lord says that he will settle up accounts when he will tear down everything on earth right now that is lifted up against his fame, against the hope that he offers. And he will make sure that his name is indeed exalted higher than every other name. Now, in that day of judgment, the big purpose that God is going to accomplish is precisely to bring low all that is exalted against him. 
And this means that for the people of Jerusalem, and this applies to us as well, that whatever earthly thing they were building their lives upon, that thing is going to be taken away from them. So their joy and their hope in earthly things will indeed be shown to be fleeting and vain. Specifically, Isaiah speaks of two different ways that God is going to bring down all that is exalted. The the first way that God is going to bring down all that is exalted is he is going to remove from them all the earthly things that have been their confidence. And so in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. Support and supply. This is a tandem that Isaiah is using to refer to everything that Jerusalem is building their hopes on right now. Whether they are building their hopes on money or power or beauty or whatever it may be, God is saying, I am going to take away all of these supports and all of these supplies. Isaiah goes on, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. The Lord is stripping all of these things away from Jerusalem. And in this way, God's hope is to show the people of Jerusalem that he really is superior to all of these earthly hopes that they have, to all of these created things that they rely upon. He wants to show them that as strong as they may think their money is, as strong as they may think their army is, as great as they may think their beauty is, that it is no comparison to the power of God. And they would be so much wiser to depend upon God than to depend upon these created things. And when this support is taken away. The second thing that God will do to this people if they do not repent and turn to him is he will come upon his own people in the terror of judgment. Isaiah 3.13 says that the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. And then in a couple other passages, Isaiah fleshes out for us just how terrifying this judgment will be. Isaiah 2 verse 10 says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty. And Isaiah 2, 19 to 21 And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Beloved, God is a great and majestic God far above the earth, and to him all worship is due, all hope is due, all trust is due. 
And when he is spurned and his kindness is ignored, he promises to come upon the earth in terror. And yet in doing so, God is not simply being vindictive. No, he is very precisely measuring out against these people what they themselves have chosen. And so Isaiah 3 verses 10 and 11 says, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. You see, God is looking at their deeds. He is looking at what they are doing to others. And God is simply saying, what you yourself are doing to others, that is what I myself will do to you. So are they losing wealth? It is because they have taken from the poor and they have used their wealth to replace God. Are they losing their army and their physical security? It is because they have neglected to use their power for the cause of justice. Are they going to lose their physical beauty? It is because they placed physical beauty above God and used it to entice and seduce others. In all of these things, God is aiming to teach his people what Isaiah says in 2.22, which says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? You see, God is saying that every single earthly thing that we could place our hope in is as nothing compared to the God of the universe. So stop regarding man, stop regarding money, stop regarding beauty, stop regarding all of these earthly things. Of what account are they? When the Lord comes, we will see reality as it is, that he is more powerful and that he is more beautiful. Now, I wish we had time to go through each of these sins that Jerusalem had committed and see how God really was going to measure out punishment exactly how they sinned against God and against others. I don't think we have time to do that, but the one that I do want to look at is how specifically God was going to punish the daughters of Zion for their pursuit of earthly beauty. And I want to look at this one in particular because this is the last one that Isaiah mentions before he goes into the great hope that God is offering his people. And I want us to see how God's hope is exactly mirrored against his judgment. So again, we pointed out that in Isaiah 3 verse 16, God is condemning the daughters of Zion, the women of Jerusalem, for pursuing earthly beauty above pursuing righteousness or holiness. And then in Isaiah 3, 17 through 24, this is the judgment that God is going to issue on these women. It says, Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Such a litany of things 
that the daughters of Zion, instead of receiving the hope of God, had gone after. They had filled their homes with every physical item of beauty that they can imagine. And then in verse 24, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. You see, God is aiming to teach these women, his daughters, what is really of lasting value. What is truly a worthy hope and physical beauty is not it. These words of condemnation, they sound very final, do they not? You can tell God's anger in these words. You can tell his, his patience has worn thin. For 300 years, the, the kingdom of Judah had gone on. And for most of that time in wickedness. And God is finally saying that the time is up. That the day of the Lord is here when all of these judgments will take place. Indeed, we even read in Isaiah 2.9 where Isaiah says, Do not forgive them. And so the question we have, is that the word that will win out? Will God remove himself from his people forever? Can the sin of mankind ultimately defeat the promises of God? Now the stunning answer that we see begins in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 12. Or sorry, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. That verse begins with the words, In that day. So before we go any further, just consider that. All of these words that we had read before of judgment that was coming, all of that judgment was coming in that day. It was a day of judgment that Isaiah was proclaiming. And yet here in chapter 4, verse 2, Isaiah is saying something else that will happen in that day. And so what else is going to happen in that day? In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Isn't that remarkable, beloved? That God says, in this day, when he is bringing all this judgment upon his people, when he is tearing down every single earthly hope that they have in order to reveal to them his power and his might, he says at the same time, in the same day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. This same day when he is making the daughters of Zion to be bald and to be ugly so that they will know that they should not hope in their beauty. He is saying that he will give to the remnant, to the branch. He will give to them a beauty and a glory that is far better than any physical beauty that they ever could have attained. Now, as he goes on in this passage, it just speaks to God's amazing love for these very people that he is condemning. So Isaiah chapter 4, again, starting in verse 2 and going to verse 6. In that day, the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. 
And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke in the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. We have these beautiful words of God's provision for his people, of how he will care for them, of how he will have mercy on them and lift up their heads. And who is it that he will exalt, who will receive this glorious hope? In verse 3, it tells us simply everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. In other words, it is God's free mercy. It is not because of anything that these people themselves have done that will earn them this great reward. No, it says that God has recorded some for life in Jerusalem and those whom he has recorded for life will be exalted in that day. When he tears down all of the earthly hopes that we have, he tells us that he has something much better for us, an eternal hope that cannot be taken away. And this eternal hope involves, as verse 4 says, a washing away of our filth, a cleansing from all of our bloodstains. Beloved, there is no sin that is so great that God cannot have mercy on it. Even the bloodstains, the stains of murder can be removed. And then I think most beautiful of all we see in verses 5 and 6 that Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies. We here are an assembly of Mount Zion, beloved. The Lord will create a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. Beloved, this harkens right back to the Exodus where God led his people out from the house of slavery and he led them by a cloud of, sorry, by a pillar of cloud by day and by a pillar of fire by night. This is a symbol of God's presence with us. Smoke in the shining of a flaming fire by night. A cloud by day. God himself will be in our presence. But then at the close of verse 5, it says, for over all the glory, that is over all this glory of God being with his people by cloud and by fire, over all this glory, there will be a canopy. Now this word for canopy is in particular a canopy that was used for wedding ceremonies in Jerusalem and in Judah. Indeed, it's the only time when this word is used for these wedding ceremonies. They would have their weddings outdoors and before any wedding they would build this particular kind of canopy in order to have this marriage ceremony. 
And so what verse 5 is saying is it's saying that God will send his presence to his people, even in the cloud and in the fire, and he will actually marry his people after he has washed away all of their filth. Beloved, can you imagine it? The same God who condemned the daughters of Zion for pursuing this physical beauty who made them horrors in the sight of the world by removing from them everything that made them beautiful is now saying that he will wash them clean and he will marry them as a beautiful bride. The very words that we saw in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. God is able to wash us clean. He is able to make us whiter than snow. And he does it by his sheer mercy, by his sheer kindness. Not because of anything that we have done, beloved. In what we have done, we deserve this day of judgment that Isaiah says is coming. And yet God says that our names have been recorded for life. And because he has recorded our name for life, we can know the presence of God. And ultimately, beloved, the only reason why we can now know the presence of God is because someone else suffered God's judgment for us. It was Jesus Christ who suffered the excruciating wrath of God, who was made ugly, who was made a horror, who had everything earthly good stripped away from him and was put under the wrath of God. And because he was punished in that way, we can now be forgiven and we can be God's beautiful bride. And these words of Isaiah 4, 2 to 6 can be spoken over us. And those words of Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4 can be spoken over us. We will be a city that will be lifted up above every other mountain and the nations will stream to Jesus Christ. And he will be the capital of the nations. Beloved, this is our great hope. I urge you, do not settle for anything less. Do not settle for money. Do not settle for physical beauty. Do not settle for physical security. Do not settle for peace here and now. Settle for peace with God. And even if life is hard here and now, you will have blessings for all eternity because God will set his love upon you. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise your glorious name that we who were so rightfully subjects of your wrath have been offered not only peace with you, but we have been given a marriage proposal that we might become your spotless bride. Oh God, would you help our hearts to see the beauty of this offer? Would you help our hearts to see this as the most compelling thing in all of creation, in all of human history? Lord, that our hopes might not be set on what is brief and lasting, but what is eternal and what cannot be removed or shaken. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.